Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, it is good to see everybody. I don't know what your experience was like in higher education. I feel like I missed out on a handful of things. There's a class at the University of Wyoming that offers the opportunity as an elective to learn how to speak to aliens. It's called Interstellar Message Composition. This is an elective that was not offered at my private Baptist university. Uh, I've got a friend who's at U of H right now, and he's currently taking a class on the appreciation of beer. Also a class not offered at my private Baptist university. I was up there the other week and mentioned that to some uh, colleagues of mine at the university, and, and they were joking about what they could start as a, a, a competition class, like maybe the Holy Spirit and spirits. What could we, what could we do here <laughs> if we could get this approved? Um, but you've got this class at, at uh, the University of Wyoming, uh, Interstellar Message Composition. It's part of the English department. Uh, and the goal is to teach us how to communicate with aliens. It's actually sponsored by a grant from NASA. Kind of an interesting thing to me. The, the class is described in this way. Um, we've thought as human beings a lot about how we might communicate with other worlds, but not quite as much about what we'd actually say. If we actually came into contact, if we actually could get a message out, what would we say? And so one of the first assignments they give to the students is to have them attempt to summarize the human condition in 10 words or less. Like if you were getting out a, an SOS message to, to life that's not here, if you were trying to summarize in just a very short, brief time what is happening here, who we are, how would you do it? One student um, has this as her answer. We are an adolescent species searching for our identity. We are an adolescent species searching for our identity. This sounds like it could have been ripped straight from the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes. The author here, Coalette, is what he's called in the Hebrew, maybe Solomon, has been searching for meaning. He's been searching for wisdom. He has been looking at the human condition and trying to figure out what it's all been about, and he's largely come up short. This morning, we'll continue looking at uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have a Bible, open up with me to the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. We'll see this, this could even be the message of our text this morning. We're, we're an adolescent species. We're still searching for our identity. The author of Ecclesiastes many, many years ago went on this journey to try to figure out where wisdom is found, what the meaning of life is, how to avoid all the vanity and meaninglessness that surrounds us in this world. And he continues that journey this morning. We'll, we'll be looking at the second half of chapter 7 um, today, which means we're still on track to finish in roughly 2020. Uh, so we are making good progress, <clears throat> as we always do here when we go through books of the Bible. We will take a break for Easter, and so we'll have just a standalone sermon on the resurrection next week, which will be great. And then after Easter, we'll take another break and do a little topical series for a few weeks before, again, diving back in. Um, until uh, 2020. I hear nothing else is happening in 2020, so we might as well enjoy uh, Ecclesiastes while we can. Um, This is, we'll see kind of the message we get here in the text. If you were with us last week at the beginning of chapter 7, the author of Ecclesiastes stopped for a moment with just the like constant, well, he stopped with a constant depression, um, kind of 
vexed observations about life and how meaningless it all is. And although it was perhaps a little depressing, he started giving us more like brotherly wisdom, like a sage, sage teacher. And, and he was talking about how it's better to go to the, the house of the morning than the house of the festival. Again, it doesn't sound chipper and happy, but this was his advice for us. There's a lot of things we can learn about ourselves and about the world when we're forced to ask real serious questions and deal with real serious issues instead of just laughing and having fun and kind of medicating ourselves. He's going to kind of continue in that vein this morning. Um, just giving us some wisdom, telling us a little bit about his own journey towards wisdom. Um, and we'll see here some actual, like, real practical advice. I'll tell you right off the bat, I love the text we have this morning. I got such a kick out of it, um, reading and studying and writing about it this week, and so I, I can't wait to share with you. We'll just talk. Uh, we'll read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up together. But we'll pick it up in verse 15. Um, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15. In my vain life, okay, so it's still, it's still Ecclesiastes. There's this tone he's setting. In my meaningless life, in my vain life, I have seen everything. Here's what he observes. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. This is his observation. Ecclesiastes is nothing. We've seen this if it's not honest. Um, I appreciate this about the book of Ecclesiastes. I, I, just this one verse, verse 15, strikes me as this is not like a typical saccharine preacher who is, if not lying, at least like manipulating in a naive way how life actually functions. This is so often how I, I, I kind of see and receive some messages in, in certain parts of Christianity. It's like, let's close our eyes to other things that are happening and just keep saying the same thing over and over again, trying to ignore the other things that are going on, the real hurts that human beings have, the real struggles we're going through. He's not about this. He's saying, look, I've made an observation. Here's what I'm seeing all around me. There are people who are righteous, who are being seemingly punished, who are experiencing negative, harmful, destructive things. And there are people who are wicked and corrupt. And we call them politicians. No, it's not, that's a paraphrase. We still got a while till 2020. I've got to warm up, okay? The jokes will get better as we get closer. There are wicked, wicked, corrupt people, he says, who live a long time. And they're happy. And they're wealthy. And they're healthy. We, we need to note accurately kind of the tone of despair here for Coalette, for the author here of Ecclesiastes. He's making an observation, and he's making one he doesn't like. He's making it as if something is seriously broken and wrong in our world. We've all experienced this to some degree or another. We've looked out in our own lives and our family and our friends just on the news. We've seen people who seem to be trying their best, doing the right thing, and yet just suffering endlessly, being stepped on and pushed over, going through tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. And at the same time, we see evil evil people who seem like the world just works in their favor. Now, all of humanity, including most religions, have some sort of kickback foundational hope, at least, for the world, that the world operates in a just way. And in a way that people who do good get good, and people who do bad get bad. There are large parts of the Old Testament that that seem to suggest this. It's called retribution theology. God seems to suggest if you obey me, then I'll bless you. I'll give you land. I'll give you family. The good things will come your way. If you disobey me, then I'll curse you. You'll be kicked out of the land. 
There'll be punishments that come your way. And there are large parts of the Bible, even in the Old Testament, that seem to critique this retribution theology. Verse 15 would be one such example of a critique. He's saying, look, if this is the way it's supposed to work, something is seriously broken. Now, he's not saying that this happens all the time, that people who are righteous never seem to be rewarded or people who are evil never seem to be punished. He's just saying, if this is the way the world's supposed to work, something is off. The, the train has come off of the, the tracks here. Even outside of, of, of religion, you get this kind of basic, again, foundational idea of like karma. I think we all, on some degree or another, operate, or at least want to operate on this, this notion. Right? If I do good things, if I'm, if I'm nice to other people, then good things will happen to me. I mean, there's a part of me that thinks that's just maybe kind of common sense wisdom. I mean, I know I try to be as nice as possible to as many people as possible because I've found that increases the odds of people being nice to me. I mean, we, we call this networking, teach it to business students. We hope at the end of the day, right, that, that if we really focus on putting good out into the world, that eventually that's going to find its way back to us. And, and we'll say things that kind of reveal our, our understanding or at least our hope for how the world should work. We'll, we'll say things like, that guy had it coming. Right? He's been building up this negative debt. That person has been doing all these wrong things, and it was just a matter of time until it came back around and got them. And the text here is saying, I'm looking out, and that's not what I see all the time. And this is a, a, a tragic situation. Um, Mark Twain once wrote a short story called The Story of the Good Little Boy. Anyone familiar with this? This is our educated crowd. All right. Um, I'm joking. Mark Twain. It's this very short story. You can get on the internet. It's a couple pages. I'd recommend reading it. It's very funny, um, like a lot of his stuff is. Um, It's about a a little boy named Jacob um, Blivens, and he, we're told, always obeys his parents, no matter how absurd or unreasonable their demands are, as parents' demands often are. Um, He uh, basically is trying to be the perfect Sunday school boy. And what he finds over and over again is that while he's trying to be good, bad things happen to him, and then all the other kids who are doing bad things seem to get away with it. Um, there's a section here I, I just want to read to you. It says this, The good little boy, he read all the Sunday school books. They were his greatest delight. This was the whole secret of it. He believed in the good little boys they put in the Sunday school books. He had confidence in them. He longed to come across one of them alive once, but he never did. They all seemed to die before their time. Whenever he read about a particularly good one, he turned over quickly to the end to see what became of him because he wanted to travel thousands of miles and gaze on him. But it wasn't any use. That good little boy always died in the last chapter. And there was a picture of him in the funeral with his relatives and Sunday school children standing around the grave and pantaloons that were too short and bonnets that are too large and everyone crying into handkerchiefs that had as much as a yard and half of stuff in them. He was always headed off in this way. He could never see one of those good little boys on account of his always dying in the last chapter. He's saying he he always wanted to meet one of these Sunday school story kids in real life, but it didn't seem like they were actually there to be met. There are a lot of good stories told about them, and then they they, they weren't there in real life. Um, It goes on, somehow nothing ever went right with this good little boy. Nothing ever turned out the way it was supposed to in the books. They always had a good time. The bad boys had broken legs. But in his case, there was a screw loose somewhere. It just happened all the wrong way. When he found Jim Blake stealing apples and went under the tree to read to him about the bad little boy who fell out of the neighbor's apple tree and broke his arm, 
Jim fell out of the tree too, but he fell on him and broke his arm. And Jim wasn't hurt at all. Jacob couldn't understand that. There wasn't anything in the books like it. And he goes on a handful of different stories where he goes and tries to be a good little boy and the boys who are being bad, they get away and he gets in trouble. He gets hurt. He's experiencing verse 15 over and over and over again. This is not what I was told it should be like. I'm doing the right things and the wrong things are happening to me. And then the, the story ends with just this, this last couple of sentences. He says, thus, he actually ends up getting in trouble. He gets spanked so hard that he goes flying into the air and perishes, therefore. Um, and it ends, thus perished the good little boy who did the best he could, but who didn't come out according to the books. Every boy, whoever did as he did, prospered except for him. His case seems truly remarkable, and it will probably never be accounted for. It's making fun here of this idea that the, the text is pointing out. Though we might like to believe the world works this way, though we might want our children to believe the world works this way, it doesn't always happen. And probably at some point in all of our lives, as, as kids growing up, we made this determination. We saw that this was truly the case in the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, the, the German pastor theologian during the Nazi regime, um, we have a, a, a record of <clears throat> a note he wrote in a guest book to one of his friends. And the note just says this, In times of great decisions, comma, Ecclesiastes 7.15. And he seems to be referencing here, like, look, if you don't know what the future is going to hold, don't agonize over it too much. Sometimes you can make the right decision, and it doesn't mean the right thing will happen afterwards. Sometimes you make the wrong decision, and it doesn't mean necessarily something bad will happen afterwards. Now, as kids, when we make this observation, typically couple things are possible. We, I see this all the time when I, I work with children or, or just I see kids around, and we see this even in adults. You can come to the conclusion that if you do good things, and yet good things don't always happen to you, you can say, I'll cash out. I'll put all my chips on the table and just go enjoy the bad things. Or you can say, I'm going to double down and root out that one thing I'm doing wrong that's causing this whole spell to be incorrect. And this is what he addresses next in the text in verse 16. And I love this. This is going to be, for at least a few seconds, your favorite verse that I've ever read you. Verse 16, be not overly righteous. And everyone's like, yes, I'm finally doing something. This man reads, be not overly righteous. Don't be too good, he says. And don't make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. I love this. This is so funny to me, because he seems to be suggesting moderation in all things, including righteousness. I'd like to think most of us as Christians have this down. Whether we knew it or not, we are to the T living biblically. In an alternate version of the world where honesty reigns, this would be our life verse. This would be what's on the mugs and on our t-shirts. Okay, this would be our mottos. Don't be overly righteous. Okay, read the Bible, but not the whole thing. Have you read some Leviticus? No, no, no. Stay away from it. Some snippets of John. Maybe some Philippians. Don't say the really bad words, but make up some like fun Christian ones that you can say. Don't be, don't be overly righteous. Don't be too wise. He, and he says this because of what he's just said, right? If you're righteous, it doesn't work out for you all the time. And if you're wicked, sometimes it does work out for you. He says, so then why would you spend your whole life only going by the books? 
playing it by the rules. Those calculations don't quite work out the way that, that, that they should or the way that you'd hope for, the way that you'd want them to. Since righteousness, since wickedness as well, don't guarantee an outcome. One would be wise, he says, seemingly, to find a happy medium here. It'd be hard to find a verse like this in other parts of the Bible, particularly other wisdom parts of the Bible. For Coelette, author here of Ecclesiastes, he seems to think that the category too wise or too righteous is a real one. Now, here's what I'm never going to do for you. Most of you know this. I'm never going to manipulate a text to make it say something that sounds better because I don't want it to say what it seems to be saying. As I've read and, and, and saw some pastors deal with this verse here, what a lot of people do is they just start to double speak really quick. And, and by the end of their manipulation, in a couple of, of, of seconds, the text is saying the opposite of what it seems to be saying. I would rather just say, maybe we'll disagree with him. But this seems to be what he's saying. Look, righteousness doesn't always work out for you, so why are you going to throw all your chips into the table of righteousness? Why not, why not find a, a happy medium here? I do think it's possible he's saying this kind of cynically. And we, you've read some of Ecclesiastes with me, right? You've seen that he's capable of this type of a thing. I think it's also possible, though, that he's referencing the specific context we just got in verse 15 when he comes to talking about righteousness, which is the calculations don't work out. Perhaps he's saying, when he says, don't be overly righteous or neither be too wise, make yourself too wise, perhaps he's saying, don't imagine you can game the system of life by being righteous. Maybe that's what he's saying. Instead of saying, don't try too hard to be good, maybe he's saying, don't expect the wrong things out of righteousness. Because that's going to frustrate you. And then likewise, he says, don't go on the other side though either. Because this is a temptation, surely. Look, if we're going to be righteous, it's not going to work out for us. Then why not be wicked? He says, well, this also might harm you. This also might be bad for you. When I taught high school, I used to give this advice to high schoolers all the time. Not sure if it's good advice or not, but it seems to, to track here with Ecclesiastes. Um, kids do bad things. I don't know if that's new for you, but they tend to make mistakes and do stupid things. And, and from my experience, kids know mostly the things they're doing that are stupid. They know that they're stupid, right? They've got people in their life who are like, that's stupid. You're stupid. Don't do that. And so my approach was always kind of as the like, cool young one in their lives. It was like, instead of another adult telling them that's stupid, what if I could just help them do something stupid in a less stupid way, right? Here's my like, life philosophy. It was always, everyone does stupid things sometimes. Obviously not myself, but... <laughs> but there's a way that you can do something stupid in a stupid way. And then there's a way you can do something stupid in a smarter or wiser way. Like you can make a mistake that most kids will make and you can go all the way to the extreme with it and end up harming yourself or harming other people or doing irreparable damage to your life or reputation. Or there's a way that you can, you can kind of hedge the, the mistake that you're making. I'll give you just one example. Um, kid comes to me and, and somehow I, I, I find out, right, it's high schooler, they're going to the party, they're going to drink. What I typically don't do is give them a lecture about why they shouldn't drink. Now, I don't think kids should drink. I'll, I'll boldly go on record, right, with saying that. But I'm imagining these kids know that they probably shouldn't be drinking and that my moralistic lecture is probably not going to convince them not to drink this weekend. Here's what I think I could influence 
Do not drive if you're drinking this weekend. If you need to call me, I'll pick you up. I've picked up high schoolers from parties drunk. That might still be a mistake to drink, right? But you can make that mistake and do it in such a way that it doesn't destroy you or is less likely to destroy you. This seems to be what he's saying here. Don't, don't do this with the righteousness. Don't try to calculate and scheme this out. On the same hand, don't just go all in on wickedness. Because if you're, you're too foolish with this, that will burn you. That will destroy you as well. He says the wise person, the one who fears God, they, they hold both of these in their hands. They understand that, that righteousness is not a way of twisting God's arm. And they understand that wickedness is not something that should be indulged. He's not prescribing that you and I be wicked here, right? He's not saying do stupid things. He's understanding this is like our default. We have to be told to be righteous. We don't really have to be told to be wicked or foolish. It kind of comes really naturally to us. He's just saying, look, when that perhaps inevitably comes, don't add to it unnecessarily. And he'll continue talking about wisdom and righteousness and and foolishness as we continue here. Um, In verse 19, he says this, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. But surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Here's his conundrum. Here's what he's been trying to get at here. Wisdom is valuable, yet you and I as human beings seem stuck in quicksand and unable to fully live out wisdom even when it's available and recognized by us. He says it's more valuable Give strength to the wise man more than ten rulers were in a city. He says, one who's really wise, they're stronger than the ten best military generals. One who's, who's truly wise, they're smarter than the ten best academics. He says, wisdom has some true value in our lives. Now remember, he's already said almost everything in life, if not everything, is meaningless. He's talking now kind of about relative good. Like, in spite of the fact that the world seems to be kind of a treadmill for the author here, What's the best way we can live inside of this treadmill? And he's saying wisdom still has value, but the problem he has here is that while wisdom has value, you and I have a very hard time being able to find that value, being able to live into that wisdom. The, the verse we get in verse 20 is very similar to two verses in the book of Psalms. It's perhaps quoted in the book of Romans by the Apostle Paul. There's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. He's not saying here that everyone sins all the time and they're all as bad as they possibly could be. He's just saying there's no one who ever does good all the time. There's no one who has no errors in his life. It's inevitable, this, this wickedness and this, this foolishness. We're backed into this corner where we can understand that wisdom has value, that we should seek it and search it, and yet we find ourselves always coming up short trying to attain it, trying to, to grasp it. And you can read this in theological terms, righteousness and sin. You could read this in in kind of more secular terms, right? To be human is is to err. This is just the human condition. We're an adolescent species still searching for our identity. And even, he says, when we can grasp softly our true identity, we still don't always have the feet to get us there. We still don't always have the courage or the focus to put on that identity. We're kind, of, we're kind of backed up into this corner as, as a species, as, as human beings. He, he's going to give us a case study for um, this idea that, that we're all kind of stuck here. 
that there's good wisdom to be found out there, but, but we're all in this quicksand of, of unrighteousness. I love this case study. Again, just very practical advice for your life today, this morning, this week. Verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Most of you don't have servants, but I'm guessing some of you have people cursing you. He tells us why, verse 22. Some of you are like, I don't know if that's an insult or a joke. Your heart knows, he says, that many times you yourself have cursed others. Again, this is just like, this is pretty good advice. This is pretty good practical advice. There's a pastor I respect who, who has this saying. He says, if you live by the compliment, you'll die by the insult. I mean, if you really find your identity in, in other people's praise of you, then when that praise stops or ends or it's pointing a different direction, then that's going to slice you in ways that it shouldn't be able to slice you. None of us like being talked bad about. None of us like being cursed. Very few of us, I think, have a positive reaction to it. I know I don't. I'm overhearing someone. They don't know I'm there. My name gets brought up, and they say something negative about me. I peek my head in. <laughs> Interesting. I'm hearing some conversation in here. I've also noticed some things about you. I'd like to first address my points and then leave before the conversation continues. He says, you, you're, you're overhearing someone talk bad about you. He says, don't take it to heart. One of the reasons why you shouldn't take it to heart, he says, it's just very practical. You know you've done that multiple times. It's funny, he uses the plural here. He's talking about a singular event, and you're hearing someone say something mean about you, and he says, you know, times, S, plural, you know that you are a person who does this all the time. There's this thing about human nature where we kind of change into our surroundings, our environment. I know I do at times, right? If you're around a very grateful person, you kind of become more positive and, and grateful. Or if you're around someone who's complaining a lot, you, you might kind of chime in with the complaints and, and kind of compare your like list of woes and things like that. Um, I feel like there's probably been times in my life where I've been with someone who's saying something mean about someone else. And I either nodded or kind of went along with it just not to make the conversation awkward. Just to, like not sort of debate about like, don't be mean about that person. Like I really like them, right? He's saying, you don't know any of the situations around why this is happening. That person could be having a bad day. They could be taken out of context. They could be right about it. It still shouldn't be something that you let cut you to your, to your heart here. And he says, don't, don't take this too personally. Um, Pascal once said this, if all men knew what each said of the other, there would not be four friends in the world. <laughs> it's a gift perhaps you don't want. Uh, in uh, The Voyage of the Don Treader by C.S. Lewis, Lucy um, comes upon the ability to cast a spell in which she can hear what her friends are saying about her. And she's like having to decide whether she wants to participate in this or not. Curiosity gets the best of her. So she casts a spell and she quickly comes to regret it. She hears one of her friends talking and gets around to like kind of how annoying Lucy can be. She's like, I don't, nope, I don't like this. And I don't want this anymore. There's a book I read recently. It's called The Four Agreements. It's a bestseller, kind of self-help psychology book, very short. Um, as like a pastor, I'm not recommending this. Like it's, it's definitely not from like Christian philosophy. Yeah, it's this kind of like ancient Eastern, morphed into New Agey type of thing. It was basically like four self-help principles. You can take it or leave it for what it was. But one of them, though, I thought probably the best one was this. It was like, here's one agreement, one principle to live by your life. And it was this, don't take anything personally. There's very few things in your life that you should ever take personally. When someone says something mean about you, 
it's kind of narcissistic to think that's mainly about you and not about them or that situation or relationship they're posturing to with that situation. When someone does something mean to you, it's not necessarily good advice to take that personally. And how much, not only more joy could we have, but how much more positive effect could we have in the world? How much more healing and reconciliation and light could we bring into the world? If we just gave up the right to take things personally, if we were able to strike that balance where we could still still think it through and go, is there any truth here in what they're saying? Not just completely avoiding, like they don't know anything they're talking about. But this is a great example, I think, of, of both of his principles here. There's wisdom. We know we shouldn't take it personal. We know things will work better that way. And yet, people will do this, and we ourselves will do this because we're not able to be righteous all the time. We're stuck in this kind of catch-22. He continues in verse 23. All this I've tested by wisdom. Notice his quest here. Notice his language. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. This is his point. I've tried everything. I've been single-minded about trying to find this wisdom, and I've kept finding it to be farther and farther away from me. I can't get it. That which has been as far off, he says, and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? This is almost a quote from the book of Job. If you remember Job, the story of Job is itself a critique of retribution theology, of this karma kind of theology. Job does everything right and has everything wrong happen to him. And people disagree on what the real like message of Job is, but I'm of the camp, of the belief, that the the heart of Job's message is found towards the end, but really still in the middle of the book of Job, when God starts talking about wisdom. If you remember, at one point, God sits back and goes, hey, Job, where were you when everything was created? Where were you when the skies were put together? Where were you when I'm playing with the sea monsters out here? Where are you when I'm feeding the birds and taking care of the lions? What, What are you doing during all of this? Job never gets an answer about the justice part of his question. There's no answer. Why did this happen? Here's what God ultimately says to Job. I think that's the, the message of Job. Hey, your best bet in navigating life is not through the lens of your understanding of justice, what should or shouldn't happen. Your best bet is through the lens of my wisdom. I'm seeing much more than you're seeing. There's much more happening than you know is happening. There are much more variables in every equation than you could possibly be aware of. And you have to trust in my wisdom. My wisdom will see you through these murky, difficult situations. But no equation of justice I can give you right now is going to necessarily be able to do that. The problem, though, is this wisdom is far off from us. It's not our wisdom. We're creatures. He's the creator. Again, watch the language in verse 24. Look at his, like, desire. I turn my heart to know, these verbs, to know and to search out and to seek wisdom. To understand the scheme of things. And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. He said this earlier in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, like, I want all of the human experience. I want to know what the wise of the wise of the wise, how they live. And I also want to know the, the bad and the ugly. I want to highbrow and lowbrow. I want to know foolishness. I want to know madness. I want to know wisdom. And here's where he says, and I find something more bitter than death. Here's a, a bit of a controversial part of Ecclesiastes. I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Um, it's never 
if you're writing a book today, you would not want to write this. You'd want to look for a different analogy, different way of, of making your point here. He has in his book already started to compose a list of things he finds better than death or worse than death. And here he places um, what he calls the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters there as, as something more bitter than even death itself. If you remember, death for Ecclesiastes is what makes life absurd, vanity, havel. He says, worse than that, this is who he's talking about here. We'll talk about who this might be and why he's mentioning it. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I've found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. That word scheme here is three times, back to back to back, right in this last few verses. Which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. He says, I'm, I'm still searching. I haven't found what I'm looking for here. When he mentions this woman here, it's, it's, it's likely that he is referring here to the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, particularly the beginning of Proverbs, the first handful of chapters, wisdom is personified as a woman. And there are actually, some people overlook this, two personified women in the book of Proverbs. One is wisdom, one is foolishness. And they both stand and try to bring people to them. And we're told to go to the one and to avoid the other. We're told not to be seduced by the, the, the um, lure and temptations of, of foolishness. And it's personified as a wisdom. It is likely here, I think, that he's taking another swipe at kind of traditional wisdom that you find in Proverbs here. He's saying, I, I, I know that I haven't, that I'm not supposed to go to, to this type of woman, this type of wisdom, this type of living, and yet I can't not. I haven't found a way around. I haven't found a way through. Another thing that might clue us in on what's happening here is in verse 27, you'll see this phrase here, behold, it's what I found, comma, says the preacher. I don't know if you remember this. When we started Ecclesiastes in chapter 1, it begins with a narrator, a third person talking. And then it quickly moves into first person, coalette, the teacher, the preacher speaking. And it's been that way since. And then at the very end of Ecclesiastes, the narrator will show up again and summarize the book. Between those two kind of bookends, this is the only time the narrator peeks his head outside of the curtain and says, I'm still here. I think the narrator is maybe tongue-in-cheek taking a jab at Solomon here. He mentions a thousand people, a thousand men, a thousand women. If you're familiar with the life of Solomon, who was held up as the wisest man in human history, the kingdom of Israel, he had about a thousand women. 700 wives, 300 concubines. That number rings a bell. And if you remember the story of Solomon, Solomon's downfall was his foolishness by taking on these women. And lest we get offended, the point of the story in, in, in Solomon's case, and here as well, is not that the women necessarily did something wrong. It was Solomon who made the mistakes. It was him who, who, who did this and, and got destroyed because of it and saw his kingdom destroyed because of it. He married these, these foreign, foreign women to, to consolidate power and build a, a larger empire. And, and the gods came into his own worship and everything got kind of, kind of inter, intermingled and, and idolatry started to grow and to grow and to grow. And the, the kingdom is, is split in half. It's a perfect object lesson of this whole passage. There's value in wisdom. We need to seek wisdom. And yet, even the best of us come up short. 
mean, if you're going to pick one person who had a shot at this, it's King Solomon. And even he ends up stumbling, ends up with a conclusion similar to what we're reading. I haven't found it. The only thing I know, God made man upright, and yet they spend their whole life scheming. The Old Testament often, I think, asks questions without giving us necessarily the answer. And I think in a large way, the New Testament functions to give us some of those answers. So very, very briefly as we wrap up here, here's what the New Testament will say about wisdom. This wisdom that, that, that Ecclesiastes says is valuable, but perhaps seemingly unattainable. In the New Testament, we're going to be told that wisdom is not an idea. Wisdom is not a proposition or a belief. It's not a set of rules or cute proverbs. It's a person. Wisdom is embodied. It's a man. It's a particular man. He lived in Palestine in the first century. He was born to this young teenage girl. He grew up in obscurity, out in the country in Galilee. He starts his ministry, he heals, he preaches. And then we fast forward all the way to you and I, and, and on this time of the year, on this Sunday morning, we watch this man start to go into Jerusalem. If we want to follow wisdom as Christians, we're not going to be looking for the right idea. We're not even going to be looking within ourselves or our ability to do necessarily anything. We're going to be following a person. What, what Ecclesiastes still hasn't found showed up in Jerusalem a couple thousand years ago. We think about it and remember it and celebrate it today. And the offer to receive that wisdom, that righteousness, that life, that peace, that joy, that offer still on invitation to you and I today. What couldn't be found, what seemed so far away, has come near to us in the person of Jesus. God in the flesh, wisdom incarnated. The one who was righteous, the one who did live upright. You and I are invited to lean into him, to seek him, to follow him, to pursue him. Wisdom is calling, and this morning he's calling on the back of an animal. And his wisdom doesn't look like what we'd expect with wisdom. Self-sacrifice, denial, humility, meekness. His power isn't what we'd expect with power. It's vulnerability, laying his life down. But in the cross and in the resurrection, we've seen that this is indeed God's wisdom, God's power, God's righteousness. So in the morning, just like we do every Sunday, we'll be invited to the table and this invitation it's a time for you to respond to the voice of wisdom calling out to you this morning. We live in a murky world, a world where we can see the value of wisdom but can't always get there. And in that world, there's a man who calls. There's one who says, life can be found in me, with me, united to me. And by the grace of his spirit, you and I 
will be invited to answer that call once again this morning as we move on through the week, as we move on through Holy Week towards a remembrance of his crucifixion and a celebration of his resurrection.